Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Galatians chapter 1. This morning we start a brand new study. It's my intention to preach through this little book of Galatians, which is not but about six chapters, but it's um, pretty serious stuff, so I don't have no idea how long that will take us. Let me tell you why I've decided to uh, preach on Galatians. One of the great lessons in life is that you get what you pay for. Ultimately, there are no real discounts. There's no free lunch. You get what you pay for. The sooner you learn that, the better you'll do in life. But at the same time, the better we have learned that practical lesson of life, which will keep us out of a lot of trouble, but the better we have learned that lesson, the more difficulty we will have with the gospel. For God's grace cannot be earned. It only comes for free. So even we who have experienced the grace of God often find ourselves subtly attaching a price tag. We believe God loves us, but secretly think that his love is really dependent on how well we're doing. And so we end up with a performance-based Christianity that acts as if what God does for us is dependent upon what we do for him. In short, we may spend most of our lives as recovering Pharisees. Philip Ryken starts his study of this by saying Galatians is a book for recovering Pharisees. Here we hope to take hold again of the gospel of God's grace. This morning we're going to take only a very small little bite, the salutation, the greeting, the first five verses. Let me read it. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me. To the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. A salutation like this appears at the beginning of just about every one of the epistles in the New Testament. It was the greeting of those times. It was more formal than our greeting, uh, Dear Harry, uh, or, or even our less formal, Yo Dude. But this was the traditional salutation that was widely used in, a, in an established form. And, and, and the established form basically would be Paul, the apostle, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace. And so because these salutations that appear at the beginning of every one of the epistles of the New Testament uh, sound so much alike, after we've read the New Testament a bit, we tend to read right by these because, well, we already know that. That's just the uh, dear, dear so-and-so. But when we look more closely at these greetings, we'll see that the apostle often modifies them a bit in order to get right to the point about which he's going to write. And thus they really become an introduction to the whole book in many cases. And that's what happens here in the book of Galatians. 
There are two really important themes in this book of Galatians, and they're both found right here in the salutation. First of all, the authority with which the apostle declared the gospel. And then secondly, the radical nature of the gospel of grace that he proclaimed. So this morning we have two truths to introduce. Two truths that are the the, the theme of the whole book and two truths that are found right here in this salutation. Although, admittedly, this is only the beginning mention of them. They'll both be dealt with more thoroughly as we go on through the book. Two points. The first is this. The gospel came straight from Jesus. The gospel came straight from Jesus. On his first missionary journey, the Apostle Paul had preached and planted churches in the city of uh, Galatia. That's part of what's now modern Turkey. Cities with names like Pisidian Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And those people had believed the gospel he proclaimed and followed Christ. But now later on, after Paul has been there at least once, some other teachers, some other missionaries show up in these churches. They have different ideas. And I'm sure the believers in Galatia say, yeah, but the Apostle Paul told us this. To which the new teachers apparently responded, well, who is Paul? Paul is just some renegade teacher with some crazy ideas of his own. But we have the true teaching. We've come from the mother church in Jerusalem. Well, the Apostle Paul hears that this is going on, and so he writes this letter. Not to one church, not to one person, but to be circulated among all the churches in this area. And in regard to the authority of his teaching, Paul will not give one inch here. He contends that his gospel came straight from Jesus. We can see how adamant Paul was about this. When we look closely at his first words, when we read... Uh, read the first line in our English translations, it, it sounds rather flowing. Paul, an apostle, sent not, by, not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ. That sounds nice and rhythmical. But the Greek words which he actually penned began rather abruptly. Paul, three words. Paul, an apostle, not by men, through men. Wow, that sounds pretty negative to our ears, doesn't it? Christians are supposed to be conciliatory, broad-minded, accepting. We hardly believe in saying no, do we? Indeed, the church seems to find a way to accommodate most everything these days. We pride ourselves in our tolerance, in the fact that we never say no. But the Apostle Paul understood that the truth of the gospel hangs on the origin of the gospel. This is not a matter of Paul being defensive about being challenged. This is a matter of upholding the authority of the gospel which God had supernaturally delivered to the world. So let's think for a moment about God's calling and how God's truth comes to us. In a few minutes here after the sermon, we're going to set apart some men for ministry in the chapel. We will ask them in the course of that if they believe that God has called them to this work. And indeed they do. But then God has called them, and God has called me, differently than he called Paul. God worked through someone to call us to himself, some preachers, some teachers, and God extended his call to ministry by means of someone, in the case of these elders, by means of this congregation. So though we are called by God, we receive that calling as pastors and elders 
through men and by men. But for Christ's apostles, it was different. They were hand-picked, personally trained, and sent out by Christ Jesus himself. And though Paul was not one of the original 12, that's how God dealt with Paul too. Paul did not come to know the Lord in some evangelistic campaign that somebody was running. The risen Christ appeared to him on the Damascus road and struck him down and claimed Paul for himself. In that encounter, Christ appointed Paul to be his apostle, to be sent where God wanted to send him. And then Christ personally taught him and revealed to him the mystery of the gospel, as Paul will explain later in this book. Now, what difference does that make? Well, it all has to do with the authority with which the Apostle Paul speaks. Nowadays, Christians often feel free to disagree with Christ's apostles. I've heard lots of people say, well, Paul was just wrong about that. Folks, that's our ignorance speaking. That's us reverting to, the play, to being the playground smart aleck who, who says to finally, who says? The truth is, Christ commissioned these apostles to speak for him. And he gave them the power to do the same miraculous signs that he did in order to authenticate their authority. You may have noticed he's not given you those signs, nor me. Therefore, neither the Galatian believers nor we are free to modify the gospel. For the gospel came straight from Jesus. That's the first thing we learn here. But what about that gospel? Well, that brings us to the second thing I want us to see. The gospel announces amazing grace. The gospel announces amazing grace. A few years ago, the writer Philip Yancey, who's written a lot of good books, wrote a wonderful little book entitled, What's So Amazing About Grace? In his book, Yancey relates compelling true portraits of grace in action. Well, in this salutation to the Galatians, the apostle addresses the same issue. Here he explains briefly what's so amazing about the gospel of grace. I find four specific things in these few little verses. Let me pick them out and tell, tell you. The first is this. The gospel is amazing, for it was announced by a man raised from the dead. As we saw, Paul got his gospel straight from Jesus. But think who Jesus was. You think, well, he was the son of God, he was the word made flesh, and all those things. That's true. But Jesus is a man who was raised from the dead. Every religion has its teachers, its holy men, its gurus, its prophets. Every religion came from somewhere, somewhere, from someone somewhere. Some of those teachers were admirable people whose teachings showed great wisdom and who lived honorable lives and died honorably. But there's no religion except for the gospel that was ever announced by a leader who had just been raised from the dead. So you may try to reduce Christianity down to one of many similar religions that all kind of sound alike. You may even go so far then as to dismiss them all by saying they're nothing but psychological crutches. You may decide that you have intellectual problems which haven't been satisfied, uh, uh, haven't been answered to your satisfaction. You may find the church to be full of hypocrites 
and therefore dismiss it on the basis of guilt by association. Oh, there are many, many ways by which people justify denying the gospel. But dear friend, you must deal with the resurrection of Jesus. If he rose from the dead, no matter what other questions exist, this gospel is true. And he did rise from the dead. And history is full of people who set out to disprove it only to become converts. The gospel announces amazing grace. Nothing less than the grace of a risen Savior. Second little thing. The gospel is amazing for it's a story of full atonement. Most all religions speak of atonement in some form. Mankind's inner moral compass, our, our conscience, accuses us and demands that our wrongs be righted. We never had, if we've never read a Bible, if we've never heard a sermon, our conscience accuses us. And so religions offer a multitude of ways to deal with sin. Good deeds that we might do to tip the scales in our direction, hopefully. Money that you might donate to pay your debt. Painful trials or pilgrimages you might endure to satisfy your God. Even martyrdom, the ultimate payment for your sins. But none are ever enough. The guilt never disappears. But in the law of Moses, God in his grace provided atonement by a substitute. People were instructed to bring sacrificial animals whose blood was shed in place of the guilty worshiper. But even that atonement was limited, for there was no atonement for murder, there was no atonement for adultery, there was no atonement for idolatry. Those people were just to be uh, sentenced to die and taken out and executed. And even the sins that were covered were only covered temporarily. The guilty conscience continued to prevail. Oh, but according to verse 4, the gospel of Christ is amazing, for Jesus has given himself to pay for our sins. And throughout the New Testament, we're told how outrageously wonderful this is. His sacrifice never needs to be offered again. It's once for all. His sacrifice is sufficient for everyone who trusts him. It never runs out. His sacrifice cleanses us, not externally, not socially, but down to the roots of our conscience. His sacrifice removes forever the condemnation we deserve. The gospel of Jesus' atonement is news of amazing grace. Third thing. The gospel announces the amazing grace of our rescue. The gospel announces the amazing grace of our rescue. Again, the gospel is much different than the religions of the world. The religions of the world all offer self-help instruction. But the gospel is the announcement of Jesus rescuing sinners. Folks, if you're drowning, you don't need someone to toss you a manual on water safety. You need someone to jump in and rescue you before you perish. And that's exactly what Jesus does. That's why we call him Savior. Christianity is a rescue religion. The word rescue was used to describe God's rescue of Israel from Egypt. 
It's, it's used of the Spirit's rescue of Peter out of Herod's jail. It's used of the Lord's rescue of Paul from a lynch mob. The gospel announces the amazing grace of God rescuing the perishing. But specifically it says in verse 4 that he rescues us from the present evil age. This is different than the atonement which rescues us from the guilt of sin. Nor does it say that he rescues us from this present world. He does not do that. Not yet at least. We still live here with everybody else until we die. So what does it mean to be rescued from this present evil age? Well, the Bible divides history into two ages, this age and the age to come. Now, people always assume that those two ages ran chronologically. The old age would run its course, the Messiah would come, and that would be, there would be an end of that, and then a whole new messianic age would begin. But when Jesus the Messiah actually came, God's plan turned out to be different than people thought. For Jesus did not come and execute judgment and remove sin from the world and then start a whole new world. He didn't do that. He came and bore our judgment on the cross. But then rose from the dead and ascended to the Father's right hand. And, and so that the old evil age continues to wind down to this day. But the new age has already begun for those who are in Christ. For those who have new life in him. Who are joined to him. Who are seated in the heavenlies with him. Who are citizens of heaven. The two ages are running simultaneously. They overlap until the Lord returns. But when Jesus saves us, he rescues us from our bondage to this old evil age and transfers us into the age to come, uh, which is already a reality. That's what we read in our call to worship this morning. In Colossians 1, he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. That's the old age. And brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's the age to come that we already participate in. Now this is a glorious truth. This means we're no longer slaves to sin. It means we're already reconciled with the father. It means we're filled with and led by the spirit of God. It means we enjoy some of the sweetness of heaven, even in the midst of the mess of this world. It means we're no longer hopeless, no matter what the circumstances. We've been rescued by our Savior. We have new life in him. The gospel announces the amazing grace of our rescue. Finally, the fourth thing. The gospel is amazing grace, for it is not dependent on us. The gospel is amazing grace where it is not dependent upon us. Notice we've been talking about the gospel announcing amazing grace. I use that word intentionally. We did not say the gospel offers amazing grace or the gospel encourages you to find amazing grace or even that the gospel calls you to accept amazing grace. We may talk that way sometimes, for grace is certainly something that we experience. But the truth is, the gospel announces salvation, which God has already accomplished. We hear and embrace that salvation only when God gives us spiritual life, gives us ears to hear and a mind to believe what God has done. Our faith 
does not make God's salvation happen. God's salvation makes our faith happen. We see this in our text when it says that all these things, the forgiveness of sins, are rescued from the present evil age, they all happen, what? When we make a decision? When we pray a prayer? No. They all happen according to the will of God and for his glory. They do not happen based on our will or something we do. We are the recipients of this grace, not the cause of it. It does not depend upon us one bit. To illustrate this, I love to use the example of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You know that story probably, John chapter 11. Lazarus, Jesus' friend, has been dead for four days. When Jesus ordered the stone removed from the tomb, remember his sisters were rather concerned about the stench of rotting flesh. So that's the situation. Here's Jesus. Here's his dead friend, rotting. Would you be comfortable saying that if Jesus, if Lazarus would believe in Jesus, that he would rise from the dead? Would you be comfortable saying that? That's absurd, is it not? Lazarus couldn't believe. He's dead. He's dead. Nevertheless, when Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of there, Lazarus got up and came. Not because he had enough faith, not, but because Jesus, who called him to come, first gave him life to hear that call, to understand it, to get up and to come. Folks, the Bible says that you and I are dead. in sin, not sick, not wounded, not, not feeling bad, dead in sin. We can't understand the gospel. We can't really even hear it. It's just noise in our ears. We can't make ourselves believe. We're not able to come to Jesus. But God, who according to his will and for his glory, as it says here, calls us to Jesus, also regenerates us, gives us new life, gives us faith to believe, gives us a new heart to obey. And so amazingly, we come forth from our deadness and follow Jesus. That gospel of grace is especially amazing for it had nothing to do with us. We had nothing to do with it. God saves us according to his sovereign will and for his glory. Years ago in public speaking class, I learned that in the introduction to the speech, you tell people what you're going to tell them. And in the body of the speech, you tell them. And finally, in the conclusion, you tell them what you told them. In this brief salutation, the Apostle Paul begins to do just that. He begins to tell us what he intends to tell us in this Apostle. Two things. That the authority of the gospel comes straight from Jesus. And that the gospel announces God's amazing grace. But you can expect to hear these things again. For Paul's only telling us what he's going to tell us. And as we go on, we will hear them more and more. Finally, Paul's greeting to the Galatians, which we skipped over, is grace and peace. Those are not empty words. 
Grace is the very nature of the gospel, which is our only hope. And peace is the result of God's grace to us. Peace with God. Peace with one another. Peace within. Ultimately, peace on earth. So this morning, grace and peace be to you as well. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the gospel. And we all assume we know what that is, and we probably do know what that is. But, Father, probably none of us have grasped it well enough. Its depth, its width, its breadth, its height, that we don't need to hear it some more. So I pray that as we work through this book together, you would refresh our minds. That you would uh, set us free, Lord, from the the, uh, wrong-headedness that we kind of slip into. That somehow the gospel is something that we do, that some way we grab hold of you and uh, get you to do something for us by what we've done or how we're performing. Help us, Lord, to grasp the great grace of the gospel. Help us to digest even what we learned this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.